So, as a kid, I was deathly afraid of thunderstorms. I didn't grow up in Texas, so luckily they weren't quite as common as they are here. Every year, though, in June or July, a strong Midwest thunderstorm would roll through central Ohio and absolutely terrify me. My dad is a pretty mellow guy, and he doesn't get excited about a whole lot of stuff. So needless to say, my reactions to these storms were always very big and extremely dramatic. Something that just kind of came naturally to me. It was screaming and crying and hiding under the bed. If you can think of some dramatic reaction to a thunderstorm, I probably reacted that way at some point. My dad always reassured me, though, that we would be safe, and he was always there to comfort me. He would help me get more comfortable. He always had a gentle approach, and he wanted me to be able to live through the storm rather than cowering in fear. This, is his, this was his calm reaction every single time, until one day. This day, apparently, he had endured enough of my whining and my irrational fear, and he was at his wit's end. He came up with a fix that would surely get me over my fear of thunderstorms and trust that he wasn't lying to me about being safe during the storms. So, the solution? We go out and sit on the sidewalk together during a thunderstorm. Okay, so this is something that I definitely don't recommend doing to your kids. Do not do this to your kids. But we sat out on the sidewalk during that thunderstorm, and as the storm rolled through, we're out there on the sidewalk. Slowly but surely, it got less and less scary. I was still very relieved when he finally told me that we could go inside. Much to my surprise, we were still alive. Neither of us had a scratch on us. And again, this is not a recommended parenting strategy. Don't do this. I'm not recommending this at all. But going out and actually experiencing the thunderstorm is what it took for me to have faith that my dad wasn't lying to me, that my father's words could be trusted. Many times his words were wasted on me. His words were not enough to make me believe that a storm would not harm me. So he had me test the storm to show me that his words were true. And from that moment, I have not doubted his words. This is something that we've all dealt with. And I'm sure you can think of times when you didn't take something at face value. When you had to test something for yourself before you could be fully convinced. When your confidence was rooted in experience and not in faith. Regardless of the words of others who had plenty of experience. Sometimes our stubbornness, sometimes in our stubbornness, we have to experience something for ourselves before we choose to believe. Today, we're going to be looking at a man named Gideon, who's in a very similar place to me in the moment of that storm. Gideon was one of the judges of Israel from the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And you've heard Pastor Bobby tell stories of some great and powerful and exceptional judges through this entire Hall of Faith series. But Gideon is not one of those. He is a painfully average guy who resists conflict at all costs. We're also going to see that he makes a habit out of resisting the call of God with everything in him. He would much rather be left alone and not rock the boat. He knew that he was one of God's people, but he wasn't very sure of all of the details that went into that. He knew that God could do great things through other people. He'd seen it. But he never really believed that he could be one of those people. He came from the tribe of Manasseh, descendants of the lineage of Joseph, 
who lived in a region of Israel who had very rich soil for farming. However, they were one of the weakest groups of people around. Despite all of this, the author in Hebrews 11 still lists Gideon as a man of faith. Hebrews 11:33 say, "Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what is promised." And he is. When we look at Gideon's story, we'll find that his life was a continual process of reaching the point in his faith where he was ready to act on what God had commanded him to do. Eventually, he would learn to fully trust that God would do everything he promised. Gideon was going to be the person that God used to rescue Israel. He was going to be. He just took a little bit of a journey before believing that God actually had this plan for his life and that plan that God gave him was true. So we start in Judges chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The Israelites did evil in the, sight of the, in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. The power of the Midianites was so oppressive, Israel finally did something that they had not even thought about for decades as they were living in retreat and fear for their safety. Later in verse 6, we see how Israel was so impoverished that they had to cry out for help. They didn't have an option anymore. This word impoverished before its translation to English literally meant to become small. And this is so telling of Israel's economic and emotional state during their time of oppression. Their economy had shrunk to absolutely nothing. It was destroyed. They were desperate for help. They knew that their only hope was to cry out for God for deliverance. Seven years of living under an oppressive, oppressive force and years before of living with the pagans had finally led them to cry out to God for the help that they knew only he could offer. Again, they had broken the covenant that they had with God. They had fallen back into idolatry. And at this point, they looked no different than the Midianites and the Amalekites all around them. The Israelites had chosen Baal and wanted so badly to be anything but God's people until they were in such desperate need of him again. Even still, in God's grace, his ears were open to their cry. And not, was it, not were his ears only open to the cry, but he was faithful to respond and he was willing to respond. Israel, again, is in the same cycle that we see over and over and over again in the entire Old Testament. They are in a place that they know is not best for them, and their chosen circumstances are what is causing visible physical, emotional, and spiritual harm, not only on themselves, but on their families each and every day. And instead of choosing to turn to God and cry for help sooner, they chose to sit back and just be along for the ride and just be comfortable. They wanted to be comfortable and not rock the boat. The Israelites knew that this was definitely not the standard of life that God had wanted for them. But they didn't care enough to change their circumstance to their own benefit and seek out God and his kingdom. They had food most of the time, even though they didn't get to keep all of it, because the Midianites could come, steal, and destroy their crops whenever they wanted they had shelter, unless Midian came and destroyed their homes, which they did, but apparently not often enough for them to want to do anything to change it. 
And they came to believe that living under Midianite oppression was at least better than being invaded by some other pagan nation. Do you feel the tension rising between God's people and where he wants them to be? Something has to give. This is a setting where we find our main character of the story, Gideon. I remember when I was first learning this story, the main point being that Gideon was a faithful warrior who did what was right by testing God and testing what God had told him to do. When I first think of Gideon, I often know that we're recalling an incomplete version of the story, remembering him as a faithful warrior who conquered the Midianites and retook what belonged to God's people and reclaimed their safety. And all of this is true, but when you look into the story, you might be surprised at what you find in the details. Gideon is a real person with real strengths and real flaws. And it's in his reality that we can find how relatable his story actually is. Judges 6, 11, and 12 tell us, The angel of the Lord came down and sat under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to the Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord comes down and finds Gideon hiding from the Midianites in a wine press. So let's pause right here because this is a very important detail. Gideon is hiding in a hole in the ground and he has an encounter with God himself. When we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's not referring to an angel. It is actually referring to a pre-Jesus incarnation of God here on earth. This wasn't just an angel. Although, if I can interject my own feelings, I'd like to think that if an angel came and spoke to me, that would be enough for me to just follow the call of God. But, you know, this was Gideon's meeting face-to-face with God himself. So Gideon, the mighty warrior, is hiding in a wine press and processing his wheat so he cannot be seen by the Midianites. And again, this would have not been like a wine press like you can think of. This is a large hole in the ground that's lined with rock or brick. So when the angel of the Lord found the mighty warrior, the deliverer of Israel himself, He is literally in a hole in the ground out of fear of even being seen by the Midianites. From his hiding place, Gideon immediately begins questioning whether or not God is truly even with the Israelites anymore. From his perspective, God was the one who had abandoned the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt, not the other way around. This to me is such an interesting point. Because Gideon's faith is so small that he's forgotten the truth that God was present with them always. And still, God trusted and knew with confidence that Gideon was the man that he had chosen to deliver his people. God was going to work for the good of his people through him anyway. And it only took just a little bit of faith. And this is true of us even now. This isn't just a Gideon moment that's unique to him. In the very same way, God is going to faithfully work through us regardless of our faithlessness. God never asks us to have some kind of superpower faith in order for him to work through us. He only asks that we have some faith. 
take a second and take note of where you are right now. The question isn't, do you have enough faith to deliver a nation? The question is, do you have some faith? Any faith at all? And I'm hoping the answer is yes. But if not, we can talk through that here some more in a few minutes. Regardless of his current hiding place, God had a purpose for Gideon that he would accomplish through him. The angel of the Lord goes on to tell Gideon what God's plans for him are. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength, you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and I will strike down the Midianites through you. All the Midianites will be gone. That's what he's telling Gideon right now. And I love how the NIV translates this, because it captures Gideon's disposition so well. I can imagine him stopping, God incarnate sitting in front of him, and just saying, uh, pardon me, sir. You can't use me, because I'm just so pathetic and so weak and so sad to be around. This is the servant that God has chosen to use, and God will use him. God is just going to have to work with him where he is and offer Gideon his strength in place of his lack of faith. As Gideon hid in a hole, God made a promise to him that he would use him to deliver the people of Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. God knew Gideon was the man of faith that he needed to do the job even if he seemed like an unlikely character. God was going to work through his servant, even if he wasn't going to make it easy on God. And he didn't. As I look at Gideon in the wine press, it is very easy for me to pass judgment on him and think, come on, of course God is going to deliver you. Have you not been paying attention over the course of your country's entire history? But I have to wonder... How often am I hiding in my own hole in the ground too? How often do I find myself hidden away, wondering, where is God? And how often do I act incapable of being used by God when he shows up to find me? And how often do I doubt my role in the advancement and building of his kingdom? This is a tough thing to have some self-reflection over because I know that the answer is too often. Psalm 57.1 says, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God will provide safety and security. We just have to trust that he is capable to care for us. The good news is that regardless of Gideon's reclusive behavior, God still found him and still planned to use him for a big purpose. The same is true for us. Regardless of our excuses, God will do his part and use us to build his kingdom, make disciples, and reflect Jesus to the world around us. We are capable because God believes, us, believes in us to do it. And that's the very job he left specifically for us. Just like we know God chose the right man for the job with Gideon, even if it seemed unlikely from the start, we can trust that God made the right decision when he chose us to be his disciple-makers in advancing his kingdom. 
unlikely as he may seem, God knows Gideon's faith in his word, even if it's shaky at times. So to see what Gideon's faith is really like, God gave him a small assignment to accomplish before he was asked to complete the big assignment of leading Israel out of Midianite oppression. Both God and Gideon knew that Israel had a real problem with idolatry that had to be corrected before God could save them from their oppressors. Israel had built idols, and they had worshipped them daily. They made sacrifices to the idols. The idols had become a very important part of their spiritual lives. They trusted these idols as their gods far more than the only true God who chose them and was able to rescue them. Gideon got a little bit of a head start on the rest of the Israelites when he had a face-to-face meeting with God under the oak tree. During the meeting, Gideon brought offerings to God, which blessed God. Gideon then built an altar to worship and make sacrifices to God. Also, a direct display to reject the idolatry that Israel had fallen into. So before he can get started saving Israel, Gideon is given that specific assignment from God. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut it down and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. That same night, then build a proper altar to the Lord your God to the top of his height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. This was truly Gideon's toughest task from the Lord. Gideon snuck out during the night out of fear of what would happen to him if he were to be seen destroying his father's family altar to Baal. This was the hardest moment for Gideon because Gideon was having to stand up to his own family and show them what they were doing was not right. Me, I would always, always rather deal with conflict with a stranger than conflict with my own family. Think about it. Imagine sitting around the Thanksgiving table. Fingers crossed, no one brings up politics, or ex-girlfriends, or health care, or movies, and you think you've made it through the holiday conflict-free. And then that evening, you brawl it out at Walmart to get a TV before the stranger next to you in line gets one. You probably will not see your Black Friday foe again, so they are likely not going to ruin the family Christmas if you really make them mad getting that TV. Upset your family, though, at Thanksgiving? That can sting for months and even years. In this case, though, Gideon knew he had to do what was right, even if it meant conflict with his own family. And the conflict came, too. Gideon and his servants snuck off in the night to destroy the family's idolatrous altar and build a new one to God. His family did not know who tore down the altar right away, but once they finally pieced it together, they all agreed that the next move was to publicly execute Gideon for his crimes against Baal. As they searched for Gideon, ready to enact this judgment judgment of death on him, his father Joash stepped out on Gideon's behalf. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. 
If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jared Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him. This is such an awesome moment because it shows a couple of things. First, it shows that Joash, Gideon's father, does not truly have any faith that Baal can do anything at all. If he believed Baal could kill his son, he would not have so confidently told the people to let Baal deal with him. He knew, and you can very clearly see it in his very sarcastic response, that Baal could not actually do anything. Another thing that this shows that I think is so cool is that God is working in the hearts of one of his people to accomplish his greater will. Joash knew exactly what Gideon had done, and he knew who he had built the altar for. Joash was probably not quite on board just yet with following Gideon into battle, but he was still used by God to speak on behalf of Gideon and save his life, thus accomplishing God's will. Sometimes we have to trust that God's pacing doesn't always line up with what we expect or even with what we want. He might be developing someone at a speed that we're frustrated with. He might be working in their heart a way we don't and we may never see. We're really good at presuming to know the part God should be playing and we lose sight of the actual work that he's accomplishing. Let God be God. Let him work in the lives of his people and be patient. He has a greater purpose and will at hand. The idol problem has finally been all sorted out. Now we've reached Gideon's big opportunity to actually act in faith. So here's where it gets kind of weird. If you grew up in Sunday school, your knowledge of Gideon's story, this is where it kind of gets messy from our recollection. Often when I was growing up, I heard the story as, oh, Gideon is so awesome because he wanted to test God and make sure it was truly God's will before he chose to act. The book of Judges is actually communicating the very opposite. We have to take the time to read the whole story. God literally met Gideon face to face. Was God going to lie to him? Of course not. This was a Gideon problem. This was not a failure on God's part to communicate what he wanted from Gideon. Gideon was going to test God and ask him for a miracle. Judges 6, 36 through 38 tell us, Gideon said to God, If you save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around it is dry, then I will know that what you have said is true and that you will save Israel by my hand. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung it out, wrung out the dew, and he got a bowl full of water. Gideon made a very childish request of God that he should not have because he has such weak faith. He asked God to perform a miracle just to prove that his word was good and trustworthy. This is a moment that defines who God is and establishes his role in the story. This moment shows us the character of God and the patience and love that he has for his people. God chose to grant Gideon's request and perform the miracle he asked for, even though he did not have to. 
And this is such a beautiful picture of the brokenness of God's servant and the willingness of God to fill in those gaps. And this hits on a personal level. Because how often have we chosen to ignore God's word and ask for more proof? I know that I'm guilty of this. Although Gideon's faith is not perfect, God's role in the story comes to an even greater light. God is much bigger than the small servants with our little faith. God is always going to provide the tools his people need to succeed in his will if his people have even just a little bit of faith. This was the message Jesus told the disciples when they were struggling to have the faith that they needed to accomplish God's mission. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus replies, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus' message was not, you are faith-filled giants with the strength to move mountains. No. His message instead was, if you even had the minimum amount of faith, imagine the mountains that you could move for my kingdom. We all want to be faith-filled spiritual giants. That's obvious. But maybe we should be focusing on reaching even the minimum level first. Even the minimum is more than enough for God to use. The same is true for Gideon. His faith is shaky at best, but, spoiler alert, God is still going to use him to rescue his people from the Midianites. When we are pursuing God in this kingdom, he will always fill the gaps of our doubt and accomplish his will through us. All it takes is a little bit of faith. Gideon had that little bit of faith, so God was willing to bridge the gap between his faith and his doubts, even if it took a few tries. So Gideon tested God once with the wool and decided that that miracle that God performed, it wasn't quite enough assurance for Gideon. So he wanted to try again. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground around be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground all around was covered with dew. He knows that what he's doing is wrong. (laughs) You can see it in the way he begins with, don't be angry with me. He's showing a lack of faith in the God who has already saved him from his own family once. But God, in an incredible display of love and patience for a servant, filled the gap so that his faith can be strong. Finally, Gideon is ready to take his men into battle and rescue Israel. Take a second to consider. How often do we ask God to fulfill the request that he just answered for you. You have an answer to prayer, and because it isn't exactly nuanced the way that you hoped or expected, you continue to ask the same questions. All the while, God is like, I already answered you. We just celebrated Easter last week, and I'm reminded of the aftermath of that incredible story. Jesus is crucified and has gloriously risen back to life. He appears to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb 
And his first, her first action is to be the first bearer of the completed gospel story to the other disciples. I have seen the Lord. Jesus then appears to his disciples as a group. But one of them, Thomas, is notably absent. The disciples all tell Thomas, We have seen the Lord! But still, Thomas needs a bit more proof rather than just taking them at their word. And what happens? Jesus appears again one week later, but now specifically to Thomas, giving him the message, Stop doubting and believe. We're really great at coming up with excuses for our disbelief. Usually, God has already loudly and clearly given us the answers that we're looking for. We're just too stubborn to accept him at his word. So I'm just going to use the words of Jesus. Stop doubting and believe. When Gideon stopped doubting and believed, God was able to work incredibly through him. When we finally when he finally allowed himself to just trust what God was saying to be true, he was able to accomplish the plans God had set out for him to do. So that's what he did. He went out. Gideon amassed all the men that he could find so that he would finally be able to retake what was rightly given to them by God. Over the course of the story, he gathers about 32,000 soldiers and rallies them to destroy their oppressors. Finally, they would be given the chance to live in the freedom and blessing that God desired for them. But this is where God throws in yet another test of faith for Gideon. God's command was to take Gideon's army of 32,000 and decrease it by 22,000. Gideon could have responded in fear and lack of faith, but instead, this time, in a nice change of pace, he takes it in stride, and does what God asks without any tests. Though, if I can interject my own feelings on Gideon, I would have been very worried if I were him. God knew that if Israel defeated Midian with all 32,000 men, they would never believe that God was the one who had the strength to do it and deliver them. God knew the Israelites, and he knew that they would selfishly take the credit for themselves and all their military might and their military prowess. So, he instructed Gideon to send all of the fearful men home to be with their families. They did not need to be in this battle for God to save Israel. Remember the whole setting of Gideon's story. Israel is living in hiding out of fear and captivity. So imagine, if God says, send home the the scared soldiers, it's a safe assumption that's just going to obliterate their numbers. They're all scared. Regardless, Gideon did exactly as God asked and 22,000 men went home. A drastic change from the 32,000 men that they began with. Gideon trusted that God, again, would fill the gap and keep his promise to save them. But God was not quite done yet. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he will not go. And at this point, I'm sure, I can feel it. Gideon is getting nervous. God tells him, there's still too many men. And my natural response to God would be, uh, are you sure about that? The Gideon from just a few chapters ago, 
who tested and tested God and made him prove his power time and time again would have been down and out right now. He would have quit. But this Gideon is a man who has seen the power of God firsthand and believes it to be sustaining through any difficulty. This is a Gideon whose little faith has increased through his experience. This Gideon has allowed God's presence to be more powerful than his doubt. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as dogs lap from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of the men drank from their cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. 300 men. In the end, 300 men are all that God would need to deliver Israel from a force that had been oppressing them for years. Again, I have to interject my own feelings of anxiety about this. It's just stressing me out. Can you feel it? Imagine, you were given a budget of $32,000 to complete a renovation in your home. You had plans. You trusted that that amount would be more than enough to accomplish the vision that you had for this renovation and you'd be able to finish what you'd set out to do. Only, at the very last second, you find out that all that money is lost and you're left with $300. A dramatic and drastic change to what you were expecting and planning for. This scenario would be terrible and leave you filled with anxiety. Nothing about your plans would stay the same. In fact, most of us would just say, you know what, we'll just forget it. We don't need to do that remodel anyway. Let's just drop the project altogether. Let's just give up. Now we have to put ourselves in Gideon's shoes. This is not just a financial loss at stake. His life was on the line. And so were the lives of the other 299 men beside him. His entire nation was on the line. Not just the land and the livestock, but their families as well. If Gideon fails, Israel will surely be destroyed in their attempt to drive out the Midianites. If there were any of us in this situation, we would be crying out to God for peace by now. This is one moment where we can literally feel Gideon's emotions because we've all been stuck in circumstances where we're not quite sure whether or not there would be a solution with a favorable outcome for us. But, as always, God is faithful to keep his promises, as we know. Gideon is about to find this out. God will always do his part, and he will help relieve our anxieties along the way. God cares so deeply for us, and this shines through as he offers Gideon the reassurance he needs just before the battle. So as they are finally nearing the battle and the victory that God has promised, one of my favorite scenes in this story occurs. Let me paint this picture for you. So Gideon and his 300 men are camped out for the night on a high point, the hill of Morah. They are overlooking the valley filled with the Midianites as far as the eye could see. This hill overlooks the Jezreel Valley just south of Mount Tabor and the plains of Lower Galilee. And they are looking down 1,700 feet into the valley. There are 135,000 Midianite soldiers that are totally prepared to live, leave Israel in a state of absolute devastation that could not be repaired if they were ever challenged. 
Gideon's army is outnumbered 145 to 1. So naturally and humanly, he is having some doubts. This is a moment where God shows his heart for Gideon. God confirms to Gideon how glad he is to be using him, even if his faith is not perfect. God offers Gideon a chance for the reassurance he needs this time before Gideon can even ask. Judges 7, 9 through 11. Now the camp of Midian lay below in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts, outposts of the camp. I just love this visible display of God's patience for Gideon to offer him the confidence that he needed after already asking so much of God rather than trusting his word at, faith, at face value. God is with Gideon, so he felt his anxiety along with him. And he took the extra step to ease his mind before the battle. That night, God gave Gideon some insider information. He told him how fearful the Midianites were, and that they had heard rumors of an Israelite attack that was going to come. God did not ease their anxiety, but instead he stirred it to the advantage of his people. God gave Gideon a new battle strategy. Another curveball. Do not go and attack at all. I know Gideon could not have been expecting this. Instead, trust me, engage in some theatrics, and you will win. So Gideon goes and he wakes up the men. Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. These soldiers wake up, rub their eyes, and think, okay, this is the moment. God has proven himself to Gideon time and time again. And now it's our turn for, to fight and defeat our captors. So let's go out and do what we need to do. But Gideon didn't place weapons in their hands at all. Instead, he gave them trumpets and lights, just like God had commanded. Judges 7:16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. I can just imagine the confusion. I can imagine the hesitancy. Gideon picks up on this too and eases their minds. This was a moment to display true faith in God who had always and consistently proven himself regardless of their doubts. Judges 7, 17 through 22. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow their trumpets, then from all around the camp blow and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the, and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp from the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke jars with their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right the hands of the trumpets. They were to blow and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. God told Gideon and his men to go all along the edges of the valley where the Midianites were camped under the cover of darkness. 
Once there, they should blow their horns and wave torches and break pots to strike fear into the hearts of the Midianites below. And finally, they acted in faith without question and did exactly what God had asked. As the commotion along the edges of the valley erupted into the night, the Midianites were in a full panic below. Judges 7, 21 and 22 say, While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their own swords. They drew their swords and their weapons and began to attack and destroy the invading Israelites. Only, we know, the Israelites are not there at all. The Midianites, confused in their panic and commotion, turned their weapons on each other and destroyed themselves from the inside. Midian was absolutely decimated, destroyed. Israel would no longer have to worry about their conquest. Gideon and his men pursued the Midianites that were left and drove them completely out of the land that God had given them. And here's where we see a full restoration of what was once theirs and what God had given them. We often find ourselves in a similar position as Gideon and his men at the edge of the valley overlooking the enemy. Maybe not literally, but we faced obstacles that seem insurmountable when we first saw them. Or Gideon hiding in the hole at the beginning of his story. Now it's unlikely that you've actually found yourself hidden in a wine press but maybe you found yourself crippled by the fear of living boldly for the Lord. Even all the times Gideon tested God along the way, he reminds, it reminds us of our continual questioning of God's will and our plan, his plan for our lives. This is a consistent theme in the story of Gideon, and it's also a consistent theme in our story. But God is perpetually faithful to his people even when our faith is lacking, and even in circumstances that may not look like what we had hoped, God proves his faithfulness, filling in the gaps of our doubt. Amen. And I am sure that Gideon would have preferred a peaceful life with no conflict, where he could have just continued in his very average ways. But God had so much more for Gideon. Gideon, through God's power, conquered a nation and restored Israel to its rightful place as God's people. God knew exactly who Gideon was and exactly what his faith was like. He knew that Gideon's faith was marginal at best most of the time. But that was more than enough for God to work with. God met Gideon exactly where he was and filled in the gaps of his faith when he had doubts. God used Gideon right where he was every single time. We have a tendency to look at stories like this and assume that God's purpose for him was larger than life. Some larger than life character who we have absolutely nothing in common with. But now that we've looked at Gideon, we see that we are more like Gideon than we really want to admit. We have many doubts. We have many fears and anxieties. But God will still meet us exactly where we are here today. God has a mission for us in his kingdom, and he has called us to complete it. We need to step out in faith and strive towards kingdom goals, even when it is uncomfortable for us. 
We are capable, even with just a little bit of faith. Trust that God will do the rest. When we take a deep dive in the story of Gideon, it's really easy to look at him and see major character flaws. It's even easier to look at him and say, well, if that were me, I would never make excuses. If God met with me and told me something directly, well, let's consider a couple of things. Do you have any excuses right now? Have you had an excuse on why it's not quite time for you to join a discipleship relationship? What about an excuse on why you're not qualified or equipped to serve the Lord in some capacity here in our church? Or the excuse of not being willing to share your faith with others during the week? Gideon's excuses paralleled ours a lot better than you might think. Gideon had an actual encounter with God at the wine press, and yet he still not chose not to believe him fully. If you met with God, would that make it easier for you to believe? Well, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you already have met God. In fact, you're meeting with him right now, and at home, and at work, and everywhere that you go, because the Holy Spirit is living inside of you all the time nudging your heart and leading you toward him and furthering us into God's kingdom. If you're waiting for God to meet with you, stop waiting. He's already with you. Gideon told God that he was not a good choice to save Israel because where he came from and to whom he was related. Gideon had doubts that he would be capable of pulling off God's mission because all of the things that we often go through and we have the same doubts So often we hear people say, if you only knew what I had done, if you only knew what my family was like, you'd know that God could not use me. I'm thinking of my own childhood trauma in that thunderstorm when I couldn't see past my current circumstances to see that my father's words could be trusted and he was looking out for my best interests. I allowed the fear of that moment to just absolutely consume me. Do not be that kid sitting out on the sidewalk in the thunderstorm. Overcome your doubts by living in faith and knowing that God loves you and is in control. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We've now come to a time to make some personal decisions and have a moment of personal reflection. In this stillness and quiet moment, look inside your heart. Listen carefully for God's words. God chose Gideon, even though he may not have seemed like the most qualified candidate. This morning, God is choosing you. He knows your qualifications and your disqualifications. He knows your greatest doubts. He's seen your greatest moments of faith And yet God is still choosing you and still asking you to be a faithful servant in his kingdom, to spread the gospel, to make disciples, and to serve those all around you. Don't wait until your circumstances change. Have faith now that God is who he says he is, and he will work through you for the glory of his kingdom. Gideon shows us that even if your faith is small,
God still wants you to be fully engaged and striving for service in God's kingdom. God will use you in ways that you cannot even imagine. If you would only step out in whatever faith that you do have and let him work through you. You cannot repress God so much that he will no longer want to use you. He loves you and he has so much more for you. Be willing to step out in whatever faith you do have and trust him. And if you've not yet decided to have faith, this would be a perfect moment to take that step, even in a little bit of faith, and trust Jesus as your Savior. It's the same story. He can use you in ways that you cannot even imagine, no matter where you are. If you don't know what that looks like, we have people in the front and in the back that we be glad to talk to you about that and talk you through what having a faith in Jesus really looks like. God is speaking to your heart about your next steps in pursuing his kingdom. I want you to say yes to God right now. God, I will believe on you. God, I will be baptized. God, I will join this community of believers in a commitment of covenant membership. I will be accountable. I will engage in discipleship. I will trust you every day throughout the week. God, I feel like I'm very similar to Gideon. I've been testing you needlessly. I've been giving you so many excuses. God, I and we as a church repent of this. God, I chose to believe that the little things of my faith will be used in a big way by you. God, we know that if you can use an average person who resists conflicts at all costs, who hates confrontation, well, here am I. I'm a mess at times. But God, I want to be your mess. I love you. I want to give you my life. Make it useful for your kingdom. In Jesus' name.